that you and ever noticed how some days are more busy than others? Yeah, I've had a couple of those this week. So this morning, I want us to consider exactly what love is. If you have a definition, and I'm going to ask you to write it down, there's why. Some people in here today, I'd say there'd probably be 55 different definitions of love. Um, and I don't want to explore feelings and perspectives that are on the fringes, but I want to look at what Scripture says about God's love and compare it with some of the common ideas about love in our, in our world today. So, what does the Bible say love is? There are two <coughs> Greek words for love used in the New Testament. Who can tell me what they are? Agape and phileo. Right. So, agape. If you study this for a few months you might begin to get a feel for what agape love is. I'm convinced it's an amazingly deep and um, strong love. And over the years, we've kind of brought it down to two words which don't do it justice. But I think they capture a lot of the essence of what love is. It's sacrificial devotion to another, whether it's God or another person or whatever. That kind of love is agape, or agapao, which is the verb, and agape is the noun. But that's the love God has for us. Sacrificial devotion. John 3.16, like we said, you know, God so loved the world, and that word is agape, or agapal, that, that he gave his only begotten son. Phileo, the other one, that's brotherly love. Anybody ever heard of a town in Pennsylvania called Philadelphia? Yeah. Philadelphia is city of love, city of brotherly love, as they like to say. And that, that is like our love with a sibling or a friend or a, even a good neighbor. That's just our friendship kind of love. And these are important to note because they're going to come up later in, in my talk here. So how do we get biblical love? in our lives, and what does it look like? Sacrificial devotion, okay? So, if you would turn with me, let's look first at Galatians 5. I'm going to have a lot of verses that I didn't have on the, on the sheet. So, bear with me. If you need a Bible, raise your hand, and Paul can get you a copy out of our, our pew Bibles there. Galatians 5. There's the, the 
four Gospels, Acts, Romans, the first and second Corinthians, and then Galatians. That's the next book. And I'm going to read, um, well, we're going to go through all verses 16 through 25, but before that, I want us to look at 22. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, Against such things there is no law. So if you are walking by the Holy Spirit, because we look beginning in verse 15 or 16, but I say walk by the Spirit and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. For the flesh sets its desire against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. For these are in opposition to one another, so that you may not do the things that you please. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmities, which is um, being enemies with somebody, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these. I mean, that list isn't complete. No, there are things like these, of which I forewarn you, just as I have forewarned you, that those who practice such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. You're out. No way. But, what an amazing word, but, there's this, but in contrast, okay, the fruit of the Spirit. I want you to know that the fruit is singular. These are not fruits of the Spirit. These are not some you might have or might not have. The Holy Spirit has all of these. If you're a believer, the Holy Spirit dwells in you and you have this fruit. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, Patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. So if you are walking by the Holy Spirit, you will have love. If you're walking by the Holy Spirit, you will have joy. If you are walking by the Holy Spirit, you will have peace. And here it means a quiet tranquility. You're not ruffled by things. If you're walking by the Holy Spirit, you will have patience. You will have kindness, which is goodness in action. If you're walking by the Holy Spirit, you will have faithfulness, trusting in God. If you're walking by the Holy Spirit, you will have gentleness, strength under control. It's meekness. It's like the illustration of the powerful stallion that's led around by a little three-year-old. It's strength under control. Totally able to wipe out the three-year-old, but under control. If you're walking by the Holy Spirit, you will have self-control. 
you'll be keeping your sensual appetites under control. So here, here is one of the parts of the fruit of the Holy Spirit is love. And that word is the agape form. It's the sacrificial devotion. That's part of what is there if you're a believer. So if you're walking by the Holy Spirit, you have these attributes. I want you to understand that. They're in the Holy Spirit who dwells in you. They aren't something given to you as a gift. They're not something you take a class for. It's all what God has given you. Seek His will, and these things are there. It's not that hard. So, okay, talked about defining love, biblical love. Let's look at agape love here. 1 Corinthians 13. Two books back to the left. 2 Corinthians 13. Here's where God defines what his word means. Now, how do I say God defines it? Why would I say that? Because this word is inspired by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness so that we might be adequate or perfect, equipped for every good work. That's Second uh, Thessalonians, that's there is a first Thessalonians. I'm here horrible with addresses unless I write them down. So here's what he says love is, beginning in verse four. Love is patient, love is kind, love is not jealous, love does not brag, love is not arrogant. Love does not act unbecomingly. I had to look that one up. It means in a way that causes disgrace to God or his reputation. Love does not seek its own. That means to require or demand itself. It's not looking for people that think like I do. It's looking for what God wants it to be looking for. Um, love is not provoked. Love does not take into account a wrong suffered. Love does not rejoice in unrighteousness. It's not happy with things that are displeasing to God. But, here's that word again. Here's what love does do. All those were negative. Love rejoices with the truth. When you hear the truth from God's word, it lifts your spirit. Love bears all things, carries whatever it needs to carry. Love believes all things. Does that mean it's gullible? No, it's, in, in, it's, it's believing all things that are true, if you will, to simplify that. 
in contrast with these other things, exactly, that we just read. Love hopes all things. Love endures all things. Love never fails. It never comes to an end. It never disappears. It never ceases. So how is this demonstrated in Scripture? I want to look at, at three scenarios. I want to look at Adam and Eve in paradise. I want to look at King David and his sins. And I want to look at Simon Peter and his denial of Christ. And how love fits in with those things, okay? Genesis chapter 3, if you'd turn with me there. What does the word Genesis mean? Beginning, very good. Verses 1 through 7 first. Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And I... What's going on here? What has happened up through one and two? Creation. And what else? What's chapter two about? Right, Adam and Eve in the garden. Okay? And God walked with them in the cool of the day. And, and I encourage you, I don't have time to get into all these, but, but look at those. Um, so, verse three, not verse. One in, in Genesis 3, Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Indeed, has God said you shall not eat from any tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, From the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat. But, there's that word again. From the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said you shall not eat from it or touch it, lest you die. And the serpent said to the woman, You surely shall not die. For God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate. And she gave also to her husband with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. Look at verse 4 again. The serpent said to the woman, You surely shall not die. That's the exact same problem that exists to this day. That is Satan's favorite tool, is to cast doubt. God doesn't really say that. He doesn't really mean that, does he? Okay? Reading on. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man, is that morning or evening? I've heard both sides, and good reason, but... Uh, the cool of the day, we know that much. And this is daily. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Then the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? 
And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid myself. And God said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? God is all-knowing. Do you understand? He already knew the answers to these questions. He knew exactly where Adam was and what was going on. Okay? What's he doing here? What's that? Adam was doing wrong things. That's right. Adam was disobeying. What is God doing? Asking these questions. Giving Adam an opportunity to confess. That's very important through the rest of Scripture. Um, and the man said, the woman that you gave me, she, she gave me from the tree and I ate. Then the Lord said to the woman, all right, let's talk to the woman. What is this you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. Notice any blame shifting going on here? Do you ever wonder where your children get it? So then 14 through 19 are the judgments where Adam, God tells the serpent, on your belly you shall crawl, and dust you shall eat. And there's going to be enmity between you and the seed of the woman. Okay? And then to the woman he says, you're going to increase pain in childbirth. Blame Eve. Ladies that have had a pain, it could have been simple. Could have been clear and simple. Um, and so, um, and then he says, and your desire shall be for your husband. That's not like we think of desire. I want you to understand that. That same word is used when God is talking with Cain and says, sin crouches at the door and its desire is for you. It's a, I, I want to control, I want to, um, and so women, you want to control your husbands right from the beginning here because God said that's what's going to happen. Um, but he shall rule over you. He goes on. And then to Adam, he says, you're going to have a lot of, you're going to, the sweat of your brow is what's going to earn you your food. And you're going to have thorns and thistles. You know, the garden now, the world now is going to have weeds. Cursed is the ground because of you. And in toil you shall eat of it all your life. And, um, and he says, um, by the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, because from it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Now notice, they didn't immediately die physically. They immediately died spiritually. Okay, so we're, we've got the stage set here. And then in verse 20 through 24, Now the man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all the living. And the Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. And now, lest he stretch out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. Imagine that, living forever in your sin. No hope for relief. Wow. Um, Therefore the Lord God sent him out of the Garden of Eden to cultivate the ground from which he was taken. So he drove the man out, 
And at the east end of the Garden of Eden, he stationed the cherubim and the flaming sword, which turned every direction to guard the way to the tree of life. Okay? That's what Adam and Eve did. They're in paradise, and they ruin it. David sins. Turn over to 2 Samuel, um, chapter 11. It's on page 476. <laughs> 2 Samuel. I'll read the first few verses here. This is 11. 2 Samuel chapter 11, verses 1 through uh, 5. Then it happened in the spring, at the time when kings go out to battle, that David sent Joab and his servants with him, and all Israel. And they destroyed the sons of Ammon and besieged Rabbah. But David stayed at Jerusalem. Now when evening came, David arose from his bed and walked around on the roof of the king's house. And from the roof... He saw a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful in appearance. So David sent and inquired about the woman, and one said, Is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah, the Hittite? And David sent messengers and took her. And when she came to him, he lay with her, and when she had purified herself from her uncleanness, she returned to the house. And the woman conceived. And she sent and told David and said, I am pregnant. So what does David do? In verses 14 through 20, uh, 27, you've got the cover-up. You've got the murder of Uriah. David tries to get Uriah to come back and spend some time with his wife. He, he sends a messenger to Josiah, or Joash. Um, Joab, there we go. The, the king, the, the general of his army, and he says, send Uriah to me. And so he sends Uriah in. Uriah is one of these guys so faithful, so dedicated. Does he go in and spend time with his wife when he's back visiting David? No. He curls up on the floor outside of David's castle, and he sleeps there. My men are out in the field. I'm not sleeping with my wife while they can't. So he doesn't go into his wife. David's going, this isn't working. So things continue. What's that? They escalate. So what does he do? He sends a messenger to Joab and says, basically, see to it that Uriah is killed in the battle. So what's he done? This is the king... He's committed murder. Now he's committed adultery. He's committed murder and deceitfulness. All kinds of things going on, right? Well, in chapter 12, we see the story around the baby's death. In 13 and 14, we see evidence of what a poor father David was. David was not a good Nick. He was a no good Nick, all right? Um, but what does he do when, he's, when these things are brought to his attention? He confesses and he repents, right? Um, as a father, he had 21 sons just by his wives. He had multiple wives. That he wasn't supposed to do. Plus he had daughters. 
and he had sons and daughters from his concubines. So how could he be Mr. Dad, you know? He's not, not doing a good job here. He's not following what God says to do. And in, in chapter 24 of 2 Samuel, he calls for a census. And one of the things the king was never supposed to do is have a census. But he does, and 70,000 men of Israel die. Because David chose to have the census. What did they do? Was God pleased with David? Look at John, chapter 18. I know we're kind of moving around here pretty quick, but I'm hoping it will make sense eventually. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the Gospels. Um, chapter 18 of John. I'll get there. Well, first of all, I want to look at... <laughs> you don't have to go there. I'm going to read Matthew 26, um, verses 31 through 35 to you. Then Jesus said to them, You will all fall away because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike down the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock shall be scattered. This is the night before he was crucified. They've had the Lord's Supper in the upper room, and, and he's telling them, here's what's going to happen. Here's how the rest of the night's going to go. But after I have been raised, I will go before you to Galilee. But, here's that word again. Peter's going, yeah, that can't be right. Peter answered and said to him, even though all may fall away because of you, I will never fall away. Jesus said to him, Truly I say to you that this very night, before a cock crows, you shall deny me three times. Peter said to him, Even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. All the disciples said the same thing too. Okay? They're determined. In their hearts they know he's right, and they're going to follow him. John chapter 18 Verse 12, so the Roman cohort and the commander and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him and led him to Annas first, for he was father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was high priest that year. Now Caiaphas was the one who had advised the Jews that it was expedient for one man to die on behalf of the people. And Simon Peter was following Jesus, and so was another disciple. We know from other places that that other disciple was John. Now that, the, now that disciple was known to the high priest and entered with Jesus into the court of the high priest. But Peter was standing at the door outside. So the other disciple who was known to the high priest went out and spoke to the doorkeeper and brought in Peter. The slave girl, therefore, who kept the door said to Peter, You are not also one of his man's, this man's disciples, are you? And he said... I am not. Wait. This is the guy that just said I'm willing to die. Now the slaves and the officers were standing there having made a charcoal fire for it was cold. And they were warming themselves. And Peter also was with them standing and warming himself. Skip down to 24. Annas therefore sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. 
Now Simon Peter was standing and warming himself. They said therefore to him, You are not also one of his disciples, are you? He denied it and said, I am not. One of the slaves of the high priest, being a relative of the one whose ear Peter cut off, said, Didn't I see you in the garden with him? Peter therefore denied it again, and immediately a cock crowed. Wow. Peter denied knowing Jesus a second and third time, and the cock crows. Look, I'll, I'll read from Matthew 26, verse 75. Peter instantly realized what he had done. And Peter remembered the word which Jesus had said, Before a rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. He has denied his Christ. So we've got three situations here. Adam and Eve caused destruction on the whole world. Okay? David caused destruction on 70,000 men, called, uh, 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 committed murder, committed adultery. Um, these aren't very good people. Peter denies Christ after swearing he would not do that. So what is God's love? How does that relate to these things? Is God's love unconditional or conditional? What do you mean by that? What's that? Okay, and I was with you for that for years. And then I really got to studying this. I'm going to say my conclusion, all right? Carte blanche, God's love is unconditional. In the Bible, we see all through that God loves us no matter what. So what is conditional? Why do we need to repent? What's the conditional part of this equation? What's that? Okay, we do need to see our sins and confess and repent, but what are we talking about here? Is it God's love for us that's impacted? No. What is? Almost relationship. relationship. Do you see, that's what God wants. God gave the Jews the perfect religion. They couldn't do it. They could not keep it up. I think, this is Jim's observation, and I'm not getting this out of scripture, so you can tar and feather me, I don't care. I think religion has done more harm to the cause of Christ than anything else in the world. Because of Satan twisting religion and making it weird. Okay? Religion isn't what God wants. What does he desire? Relationship. That's what's harmed when we're not right with God. Because he desires none should perish. And I'll, I'll get into these. So, God loves us no matter what. And we'll look at some verses that kind of support that shortly. But from the world, if you love unconditionally, you won't judge someone for their sin. You will, quote, love them to Christ. Don't hold their feet to the fire. That's very judgmental. That's very unloving. So does God stop loving us 
when we sin. Let's think about it. Did he stop loving Adam and Eve when they ate the forbidden fruit? How do we know that? What did he do for them? He protected them from eating of the tree of life. What else? Kept them alive. He made them clothing. And, 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 and um, he, he made them clothes, and that was, from, that was skin from an animal. So right there is your first sacrifice. He says the life is in the blood. And when we sin, the payment is in blood. It has to be in blood, or you will never be forgiven for your sins. In the Old Testament, they had to do it with sheep and pigeons and cattle and all kinds of things, right? In the New Testament, Christ did all that. He paid the penalty for our sins with his blood. But he, um, he also made them look around the room. What do you see in, in other people here? You see children of Adam and Eve. He made them fruitful. He told them to be fruitful and multiply. Well, that has its own problems in their obedience as we go through things. But he blessed them with children. Could he? He had plenty more dirt. Couldn't he have made another Adam and another Eve out of that Adam's rib? He easily could have done that. He spoke the universe into existence. That would have been nothing. That was a mistake. Let's start over. What's that? God God doesn't make mistakes. No. He works with what he has. We can mess things up really, really, and he will still work with us. And we're going to see that as we go along. So did he stop loving David when he sinned? No. What happened to him? For one, he made a covenant with him. The covenant was made before David did these big sins, but God hasn't broken that covenant. And he's the one who initiated it. He's the one that can pull it. And he hasn't done that. He didn't do that. Um, And in Acts 13, 22, he refers to David as a man after God's own heart. How can that be? David's a murderer, an adulterer. He didn't follow God's rules for being a king. But he's a man after God's own heart. What made him that way? What do we see in the context of Scripture that made him that way? His humility and repentance when these things are are pointed out. Um, Did he stop loving Peter when he sinned and denied him three times? Yeah, look at John 21 again. Well, not again. Look at John 21. Verse 15, so when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, tend my lambs. Jesus asked Peter if he agapes him. But notice, you won't see it in any translations I've found. Peter, do you love me? Is agape. Yes, Lord, you know I love you is phileo. Think of the consequences of that. Peter, do you sacrificially love me? He's going, Lord, you know I don't. I love you like a brother. I'm really endeared to you, but I'm not sacrificially devoted to you. So we ask him a second time. Same response. The third time. 
Simon, son of John, do you love, do you phileo me? Peter was grieved that he asked him a third time if he phileoed him. Why do you think he was grieved? What's that? He couldn't measure up. I believe he recognized he hadn't done a good job of either agape or phileo love. He left his friend to die. Notice the following out of this passage. Peter denied Jesus three times. Then Jesus asked him three times about his love for him. Each time after Peter's response, Jesus gave him instructions. Interesting. After the first time, he said, tend my lambs. That tend means feed. Feed my sheep. Okay? It's present tense. In other words, do it now. It's an imperative. That means it's commanded. He commands Peter, feed my lambs. And it's active. Peter has to do it. It's not something God's going to do. Then, after the second time, he says, shepherd my sheep. That means govern or rule my sheep. He had said he's going to build this church on Peter, right? You look at Acts, who's the first one to speak up? It's Peter, first one to share the gospel. That's when the, the tongues of uh, the, the Holy Spirit, like tongues of fire, came down. Um, that's when they, they spoke. It's at Pentecost. They spoke, and it doesn't say they spoke in tongues. They were each heard in the people's own language of their birth. That's amazing. What I'm saying, each one of you would hear in your own birth language. Some of you from the South, maybe y'all, you know, that kind of thing. And, and, the, and the third time, again, tend my sheep. Each one of these is present tense. It's a command, and he's to do it. He's it's to actively be done by him. Peter sinned against Jesus, yet Jesus commissioned him to start the church. Is that love? He still loved Peter. Peter was still, he was grieved when all this started. Right? He was still broken that he had sinned against God. David the same way. He was able to use him because he repented of it. Adam and Eve, it doesn't specifically say, but he used them to go ahead and do everything that we've seen recorded in Scripture since then. Oh, yeah. I mean, yeah, we'll talk about that here in a minute. So... Um, this means that Peter was told to teach them and guide them by the Holy Spirit. God had accepted Peter's repentance and forgiven him of his sins. Do you see what's going on in these three examples? God knows all things. How many grains of sand are out there on the road? How many needles are alive and dead on the, on the lodgepole? You know, all things. He knows your thoughts, your hearts including our intentions. And he knows, from his word he tells us, he knows we're sinners, worthy, our wages are death. 
We have earned death because of our sin. Okay? That's Romans 3.23 says we're all sin and fall short of the glory of God. Romans 6.23, and the wages of sin is death. And that one goes on yet or but. The free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Yet, he knows all these things. He's willing to use us with all of our flaws if we will only give ourselves to him in humble repentance. So let's look at these kind of from that perspective. Adam and Eve lived in perfection. Their home was paradise. God was their daily friend, their visitor, walking with them. They lacked absolutely nothing. No pain, no suffering. It was perfect. God let them continue, let them choose to continue in that condition or to lose it all. They chose sin and corrupted all of mankind and all of creation in the process. Here's a pop quiz. Why did God let Satan in the garden to tempt Eve? What's that? To give us a choice. God has always, from the very beginning, given us choice. And he has always said, he is consistent from Genesis to Revelation. If you obey me, you will be blessed. If you disobey me, you will be cursed. That's the bottom line of everything. And if you disobey me and you are cursed, all right, if you repent, you will be blessed. He gives us an out. But it's very specific. There aren't different spokes on a wheel that bring us to the common God in the middle. No. Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. Very exclusively, he says, no man comes to the Father but by me. So are Christians intolerant, narrow-minded? No, we're just passing on the God who is totally holy and completely just. We're passing on his message there. So, yet God still demonstrated his love for them, as we noted above, but their relationship was damaged. They had no more, Adam and Eve had no more cool of the day walks with God. They no longer lived in paradise. They were kicked out of paradise. They were ashamed of their nakedness. Think about it. Eve was the last woman who could truly say to her husband, I have nothing to wear. <laughs> they had increased pain and hard work in their lives. And David... Let's look at him for a minute, just in the same light. He was brought from a shepherd to be the greatest king ever until Christ reigns at the second coming. He was given a covenant from God to never lose the kingly line in his descendants. He was referred to by God as a man after his own heart. He will reign again in Jerusalem. We see that in Jeremiah and Ezekiel. Jeremiah 39, 30 verse 9, and Ezekiel 34, 23 and 24. David sinned in ways that affected himself, affected his family, and affected his kingdom. 
yet. But God still demonstrated his love for him, as we saw above, but his relationship was impacted. His family was a mess. His marriages were, infect, were affected, <laughs> infected, maybe good word for that. And the people in his kingdom were impacted. And now Peter, Peter, he swore his allegiance to Christ. He said he was even willing to die for him quickly and easily and shortly sinned against Christ. He was grieved over his sin. But God demonstrated his love for him by commissioning him into service for God while Peter was in unrepentant sin. His relationship with God was one of bitterness and weeping. And then I want to talk about tough love or correctional love, if you will. Turn to Hebrews 12. Here's, here's still love demonstrated. And why do I say that? Because it's right here. Verses 4 through 11. I'll read them. You have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood in your striving against sin. And you have forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by him. For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines. And he scourges every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? But if you are without discipline, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. If God doesn't discipline you when you sin, you're not one of his. Furthermore, we had earthly fathers to discipline us, and we respected them. Shall we not much rather be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they, referring to the earthly fathers, disciplined us for a short time as deemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good, that we may share his holiness. All discipline, for the moment, seems not to be joyful, but sorrowful. Yet to those who have been tra trained by it, afterwards it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness, of being right before God. Correcting sin is a very loving thing to do. Letting sin go unchallenged is clear evidence that you don't really love that individual. Why? Because sin separates us from God. Right? Sin damages our relationship with, with God. And I'm running low on time. Um, Psalm 51. I still want to go there. Look at the heading of this psalm. For the choir director, a psalm of David when Nathan the prophet came to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. This is where David sinned. Nathan warned him, David understood the warning, and he repented. Okay? Psalm 66, 18. If I regard wickedness in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. 
Sin damages our relationship with God. And in Psalm 51, we see things like um, verse 8. Make me to hear joy and gladness. He couldn't hear joy and gladness. Let the bones which you broke rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Don't cast me away from your presence and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. He was damaged by his sin with Bathsheba. So let's think this through and consider the following as we look to wrap these things up. All fall, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We see that in Romans 3.23. The wages of sin is death. Wages are earnings. We've earned death. We ought to be killed because we sinned. Jesus Christ died for all humans. We see that John 3.16 as we mentioned. 1 Peter 3.18, 2 Peter 3.9, 1 Timothy 2.4, it's crystal clear, God desires none should perish. Okay? He's knowing full well that they're all sinners. But he doesn't want any of them to perish. God uses sinners to his glory. We see that in 1 Corinthians 10.31 and 1 Peter 4.11. As believers, clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ, I don't believe God considers our sins once we turn to Him. But He sees our potential as disciples of His. The three examples we discussed with Adam and Eve and David and uh, Peter um, helps us see that while God's love for us is unconditional, our relationship with Him is very conditional. He still loves us no matter what we do. It's not loving to let someone continue in sin without warning them of the consequences. They don't need empathy and comfort in their sin. They need to know their sin is deadly. Jesus always pointed out sin, telling them to stop it. He always demonstrated his love by telling the truth. Unconditional love doesn't mean we should avoid offending someone by telling them, sin. And let me just give a quick illustration. You're standing in a highway where just around the corner there's a bridge out. And anybody that goes off of that bridge is going to die. It's a deep rocky bottom ravine. Okay? Just then you see a car coming full speed towards you. So which of the following is a loving thing to do? There's multiple choice. I'll give you three to choose from. A. Smile and wave as they go by. Be friendly. Just love them what Jesus loved. How about B? Just watch them drive by since they probably deserve whatever's going to happen with them. It's all between them and God anyway. After all, God is all powerful. He can stop them if he wants. Or C. Warn them by doing your best to stop or slow them down enough to see that the bridge is out even if it risks your own safety. By tolerating or being accepting of their sin, you're actually helping them drive right off the bridge. You're letting them go. You're not loving them and caring about their eternal life. So what? Isaac likes to give us a so what. Here's my so what. 
I've heard people say the best thing to do for people living in rebellion against God is to just show them unconditional love. They don't need judging. They need acceptance and love. They need the love of Jesus. They say that's what God did for us. My first observation with that is that they don't read their Bible. You heard that somewhere before? They don't love Jesus because he said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. If you show them acceptance and love when they die, they, they don't, okay, I skipped a couple lines of my thoughts here. We're testing this theory uh, that you just need to love them and let God work it out. Um, if you show them acceptance and love, like that says, and then they die, what is going to happen? Well, they haven't repented of their sin. They don't love Jesus. Romans 1, 18-32, and other places in Scripture tell us they are condemned and cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. So, what have you done? You have loved them straight to hell. Okay? Isn't it true? I mean, so what should we do? Pray for them. After all, it's the Holy Spirit that convicts of sin, righteousness, and judgment in John 16, 8. You need to warn them the bridge is out. How shall they hear without a preacher? Romans 10, 14. You need to show them God's unconditional love by sharing the truth with them, even if it hurts. You, or them, or a defense. God loves them unconditionally, but unless they are trusting and following him, their relationship with him will be ending when they die. That relationship will be done. It is appointed for men to die once, and after this comes judgment. Hebrews 9, 27. So love them with a sacrificial love that never fails to encourage them towards God's standards. Remember, Jesus loved them so much that he died to take the punishment for their sins. That's how much he loved them. Do we love them that much? Lord, we are all worthy of death. It's true. The only difference between us and somebody who's living in rebellion against you is simply that we recognized our need to repent and turn to you. Help us show others that. May we care. Even if someone's breaking into my home, Lord, and I, I'm tempted to shoot them, I, I, I need to recognize I'm I'm protecting my family, Lord, but I may also be condemning them to hell, not giving them the gospel. Lord, lives are fragile. We can live hundreds of years and that's nothing compared to eternity in heaven or hell. And each one of us is an eternal being. So we thank you. Your words made it so clear. Your ways are so right. You are such a just and fair God, Lord. There's no, no arguing that if we understand you at all. 
So we just thank you for what you have given us and how you do work in our lives. We pray you would help each one of us, Lord, to walk closer to you, to walk by your Spirit, demonstrating the fruit of the Spirit, living out the kind of love that you describe for us in your Word, being people who are growing more and more to look like Jesus and less and less like ourselves and the world. We praise you and we thank you for this time, Lord. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.